The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. All right, good morning. Thank you, Jason. You need to take a sip of water, I think. Okay, no, but seriously, 80 verses is no joke to read. Uh, so, hello, I'm Ikan. It's good to be with you all again. Um, I'm a covenant partner, and if you hear that terminology here, it just means that I'm a member of this church, okay? Um, we don't let blood, nothing like that here. Okay, no, no funny nonsense. Anyway, um, here in this church, sometimes we do uh, large chunks of scripture in one go. Um, and you notice that today that was quite a lot of scripture. Oh, this is not meant to be moved. Okay, no. yeah, you notice that that was quite a lot of scripture. Um, and we often say we need to take a 30,000 foot view. Uh, today we're going to need a rocket. <laughs> okay? like, that's a lot of, of text. So how are we going to do this? Um, we're going we're gonna to go through and basically the title of today's sermon is To Know the Son, uh, Portraits of Jesus. What we want to do is from this text, you just want to see kind of por- different portraits of who Jesus is. Uh, different portraits of the same person and how he responds differently to different situations and people. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, so uh, let me just pray for us and then we'll just go right in since we have so much to cover. Father, I thank you that you uh, gave us your son, you sent him into the world, and that you give us so much material to look at to, to learn about who he is, to know him, to know his character, to know his heart, to know his love and his grace. Um, I thank you for the way in which we can see uh, so clearly how he responds to people who we might not expect. Who, and he doesn't just associate with unexpected, lowly people. Um, he loves them. And he has compassion on them. And he's gentle with them. I pray that as we learn today, our hearts will be soft, that we would be quick to repent where it's needed, we would be quick to worship, and that we would be quick to share the good news of who Jesus is with others. So help us by your Spirit. Uh, we need your help, Holy Spirit, to, to see and worship you, the Son of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now at this point, I usually start by saying something to hint at what the sermon is going to be about. Um, but I just wanted to start today with a bit of vulnerability. We could do with that, right? Um, so let me just share... Somewhere in the middle of January, uh, I found myself thinking that uh, 2023 hasn't really felt like a new year at all. <laughs> There's nothing that seemed very new about it. It just kind of seemed that 2022 never stopped. And, and maybe some of us here kind of feel in the same ballpark, right? You kind of feel like, man, yeah, actually, yeah, it is a new year. And, and it kind of took a while to hit you. Maybe some of you, you changed jobs or you are thinking of changing jobs, right? You want something new. Uh, but you find that actually, even after that change, you're still as tired as before. Um, maybe some of you, well, I know some of us here have experienced um, death in the family. That's tough. Some of you have been in accidents, right? And so it's kind of like, man, like, it's January and I'm tired, and maybe you're okay, but un- underneath it all, there's still a bit of restlessness about you. Um, your job. I don't know about you, but sometimes I roll into bed kind of reluctantly at night, and my mind's on like the, the two or three things that I left undone. And I just know, ah, oh, you carry over tomorrow. And then, lucky tomorrow, right? More stuff hits. And, and so, it's this never ending, like, it just keeps going day after day. 
And so it's so easy to just, you know the, the term grind? Like that, that's such an in-trend term now. Like when people talk about work, they're like, oh, we just, it's a grind, right? And, and you realize that you've just kind of gone on from one year to the next, one day to the next. And maybe it's easy then to even question here, especially if you're a Christian, your identity. Um, how am I as an employee? How am I as a spouse? How am I as a parent? How am I as a church member? Do you resonate with any of that? Do you feel a kind of, oh, it's a bit restless, you know, yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite settled, I'm tired, I feel a bit out of breath, but I can keep going. And the question for us is, what do we do? What do we do about that? Because the problem is, for many of us, it doesn't actually paralyze us, right? You know, you know it's a big problem if you're paralyzed by it, and, and you can't go and say, I, I'm done, right? I need, to, I need to make some drastic changes. But actually, the problem is, for a lot of us, we're not paralyzed. We can kind of just about get by. Uh, we, we, we do that whole routine where we, oh, we tire our own bed, and we get up the next morning, just keep going. But we never really have a moment to reconsider our lives, but the tiredness and the restlessness is always there. And so we ask, does it get better? And we try and convince ourselves, yes, it gets better, you know, and, and it does until it doesn't again. And the cycle keeps going. We're trapped in this cycle of effort and tiredness. And what we're going to see today is that we can find peace and rest amidst our busy lives in this busy city. Uh, I, I need to hear this message myself this week, and I hope that this is helpful for you too. So we're going to find the answer. How do we find rest and peace in the person of Jesus? Like we said, we're going to look at portraits of him, and there are going to be five portraits that we look at. Uh, we're going to see firstly how Jesus answers doubts, and we're going to see how Jesus prioritizes hearts. If you're taking notes, uh, I'll repeat it again. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus has undeniable power and Jesus grants rest. Okay, one more time. Jesus answers doubts. Jesus prioritizes hearts. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He has undeniable power and he grants rest. So we're going to start looking at the identity of Jesus by looking at how he answers doubts. So in verses 1 to 19 of chapter 11, uh, we have this uh, long account of John the Baptist. Um, so maybe it's good to start by asking, so who's John the Baptist? Especially if you weren't here for recent weeks, you're not too familiar with this Bible character. He was a prophet, uh, and, and we learn from verse 13 that he was the last prophet of this old covenant before Jesus arrived. And this, a simple way to understand the role of a prophet in the Bible is he spoke the verbatim word of God. He spoke the word of God. He was God's messenger. And so if you look in the Old Testament at books like Hosea, Amos, and Micah, you often find that the, the prophet speaks as if God himself is speaking through them, which he is. God is using the prophet as a mouthpiece. And so that's what John the Baptist is. He's God's messenger. And we, see, we saw in Matthew uh, chapter 3, uh, what does John say? John the Baptist said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And verse, uh, verse 5 of chapter 3 tells us that the result. Jerusalem, all Judea, all the region about the Jordan were going to him, and they were getting baptized by him in the river Jordan. That's quite amazing. Talk about a successful ministry. 
right? And imagine being the prophet who gets to prepare the way for Jesus, who gets to baptize Jesus. That's quite something. But not all is well with John. We're told that John has been imprisoned. Uh, elsewhere, we learn, if we refer to the Gospel of Luke, that John was imprisoned by King Herod Antipas because what John did was he rebuked him for an illegitimate divorce and remarriage. And so John has some questions, and he, he sends dis his disciples out to question Jesus. Verse 3, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And what John is asking is, I know about the promised Messiah. I spend my ministry preparing the way, you know, are you the one? Or put it another way, John is asking, I'm suffering, I'm in prison for my ministry, is it worth it? Jesus, are you who you say you are? And on one hand, I think this should comfort us. Because if someone as great as John the Baptist, who saw Jesus face to face, who got to baptize him, who saw the heavens open, can doubt, even if it's understandable, right? He's languishing in prison and Jesus says, I'm the son of man, I'm the Messiah. Well, why am I still in prison, right? Okay, understandable. But if he can have doubt, then we should expect that as Christians, sometimes we will have doubt too. And do you have doubts right now? None of us are in prison for our faith, unless you're out on bail right now. And every now and then, we were talking about tiredness and the struggle. Maybe you have those moments in your day, or maybe it's at the end, where you, you just begin to ask, is this all really worth it? Jesus, are you really who you say you are? Because we're staking our lives, and not just our lives in the sense of life versus death, but we're staking the way we live our lives on the truth of who Jesus says he is. So we ask, is there really a beautiful eternity waiting for me? All the things you call us to give up in this life, is it really worth it to carry my cross every day? But then you think, no, 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 can't think, can't think like that, right? And you go on. But those doubts linger, right? They niggle at you at the back. And even if for the most part you believe the truth, there's just that grain of doubt. And it plays in the background, Right? The good news is Jesus is not allergic to doubt. He doesn't condemn John for his doubt, and therefore he doesn't condemn us for our doubt. You see, doubt is different from unbelief. Okay, doubt is uncertainty that can be wrestled with. You can ask questions about, you can talk to other people about, but unbelief, as we're going to see later on in this text, is a deliberate decision to reject the truth about Jesus. He condemns unbelief, but Jesus engages doubt. He engages John's doubt. And what, is, what does he say to John? You little weakling, it's just a bit of imprisonment. No, he doesn't say that. He quotes Isaiah 35 and 61, and he tells John's disciples, and this is beautiful, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And it's almost like Jesus is telling John's disciples, take a look around. What does my ministry 
look like? Go and tell John what you see, what you hear. Doesn't that, John, doesn't that remind you of some Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah? Doesn't this sound familiar? So Jesus' answer to doubt is to invite us in the same way that he invites John to consider what is true about himself. So what are some things that Jesus says? He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And what this means is Jesus tells us that when we follow him, regardless of how dark and empty and vacant our lives can feel like sometimes, the truth is, the reality is, we have the light of life. If you want to think about imagery for a second, just imagine the, the Israelites during the Exodus in the dark of night, no street lands during that time, complete and utter darkness, fleeing Egypt. But they have this pillar of fire, massive in front of them, showing them the way to, to freedom, to the promised land, light. Showing them the way to life, out of slavery, to a peace and security that they could not imagine after more than 400 years in the darkness and slavery of Egypt. The light of life pointing the way to the promised land, to the end. But our assurance is so much better than what John had. Uh, verse 11 of chapter 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And Jesus is saying, John could only ever point forward to the kingdom of heaven. Even when Jesus arrived, he could only point to Jesus. But Jesus comes to bring it about. So I'll ask you again, do you have doubt? Do you find yourself wondering if this life counts for anything? Is there a better story than a story of grinding daily, waiting for the next weekend, the tiredness? Jesus' answer is to invite us to consider who he is and what he brings about. Because the truth is, if you're in the kingdom of heaven, you do have meaning and purpose. You do have a direction. You're, we're headed for a world where there is no more darkness, where everything will make sense, where everything will have meaning, where every second is full of joy and meaning to be in relationship with God. And it's so good because it doesn't even matter if you feel like the least in the, in the kingdom, right? If you, don't, you, don't, you feel kind of feeble and weak, it's not about you. Take your eyes off of yourself, look away from the darkness, and look at Jesus. And as the hymn says, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. Can you see the, the bigger and better story that we are caught up in, that Jesus wants us to look at? Are you tired? Look up. Look forward. Jesus engages doubts. He answers Doubts. That's portrait number one. Let's look at portrait number two. Jesus prioritizes hearts. Now, 
Moving on in chapter 11, verses 20 24, uh, we have this curious account of Jesus condemning the cities of uh, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Right? And then, in contrast, he says, actually, it would be more tolerable for Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. Uh, so, what's up with these two sets of three cities? Um, let's start with Sodom. That's a good starting point. I think many of us will remember uh, it's popular even with non Christians Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? These two cities go together. And in Genesis 19, uh, what happened is God actually destroyed both Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, and the reason was they, they were just exceedingly sinful. And God just destroyed them. The only person who escaped was Abraham's nephew, Lot. Uh, ring a bell, we went through Genesis series. But, but let's ask the question, what's the reason for Jesus' specific condemnation of one set of three cities over another set? Because Jesus says, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum didn't repent even when the people in those cities saw his mighty works. So is, is that it? Is that, is that the reason? Well, actually, Sodom was destroyed because they didn't repent either. So that can't be the end of, that can't be the only reason. The difference is Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were Jewish cities. So if anyone, the Jews in those cities, upon seeing the works of Jesus, should have been the first to realize that he was the long-awaited Messiah. They should have been the ones to join the dots first. They had the promises. They had the Torah. right? They should be able to look up, look down and say, there he is. And they should have been the first ones to repent. But they didn't. And more than that, they would have been the ones carrying out acts of the law. These cities, as compared to the pagan Gentile cities. And doesn't that signal a warning to us? These religious cities who know the law and maybe even strive very hard to obey them each and every day, they're actually worse off than pagan, ignorant, darkened cities who didn't have the Old Testament revelation who didn't believe them, who didn't have the acts of the law, didn't have the temple. They're worse off. So that's something for us to reflect upon, right? Are we more concerned with the things we're doing or the ways we're serving than the condition of our hearts? Because here we can clearly see that Jesus doesn't look very highly upon external religious effort that doesn't come from a repentant heart. What Jesus prioritizes is heart repentance. He looks at the two cities and he says, this one would have repented faster. You guys had the revelation. I did works in your cities. You didn't even repent. His priority is repentance. And actually, um, Jesus kind of holds up, points to the Pharisees as an example of this problem. Right? It's a lesson in missing the point. And we're actually going to talk about the Pharisees quite a bit uh, from here on out. But just to explain, we've talked about the religious leaders previously. Um, who are the Pharisees? Uh, they were religious leaders who focused almost entirely on the external acts of the law to the point where they began adding additional measures over and above God's law. And it's kind of like to make sure that, that they didn't even come close to sinning, right? Like super safe. Let's just not take, you know, just leave no room for even the possibility of the possibility of sinning, Right? And Jesus starts out in verses 16 to 19, and he calls them children in the market. He uses a metaphor, and he describes how they rejected not just him, 
But John the Baptist called to repentance. That's what the, the flute and the dirge is all about. He's saying, here's one messenger out in the wilderness calling you to repentance, didn't listen to him. Son of man comes, eats with tax collectors and sinners, and he, he, he drinks with everybody. Not good enough. No repentance. Right? See, these Pharisees just could not see the truth one way or the other. Their external acts of obedience, their focus on external acts of obedience as the end of the law has actually hardened their hearts to a point where they can't hear the call to repentance anymore. And if you turn with me to near the end of chapter 12 in verses uh, 43 to 45, we'll see that Jesus continues to describe the state of this evil generation, these religious leaders, particularly the religious leaders, and he, he switches metaphors. He starts calling them a demon-possessed person. And he says, you know, the Pharisees acknowledge that they have a spiritual need, right? This, this idea of, of a demon-possessed man, there is a spiritual need. Uh, but you know what their solution is? They want a clean house by their own effort, right? Let's, let's get the house in order. Let's sweep it clean. But all they have, Jesus says, is empty religion. It's just a shell. There is no life. People who are completely focused with the physical, external acts of obedience, paying no heed to the heart, that's what you're left with. And he says, the end state of that person is worse than before. It just gets worse and worse. They become harder and harder and harder. They just won't hear about repentance and they won't want to respond. And we'll learn more about that later. But I just want to say, let's not make that mistake today. Let's recognize that this portrait of Jesus shows us that what he is primarily all about, what he primarily desires, is not our efforts to gain his favor, but for us to come to him with soft and repentant hearts. Let's make the Christian life first and foremost about seeking and not doing. And I know some of us here, we, we've recently stepped back from some areas of service. And I just want to remind us, beyond the question of whether you're serving or not, how often you're serving, the better question by far is how's your heart? How's your repentance? I'm not saying don't talk about service. I'm not saying don't be passionate about service. But the first priority is our hearts. That's what we need to deal with first. How's our repentance? How's our heart? Because Jesus rejoices over repentant hearts and he turns away from those who don't want to repent even after hearing the truth and those who just care about physical acts of obedience. He prioritizes hearts. Let's look at portrait number three. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Sorry, we're jumping around here, but we're going to look back uh, at the beginning of chapter 12. Right, so that's verses 1 to 21, well, almost most of it. Okay, and, and again, the Pharisees enter the picture. And they have two problems with Jesus this time. Firstly, they say, how can you allow your disciples to pick grain on the Sabbath? And secondly, they say, how can you heal a man on the Sabbath? Okay, so let's address the whole thing about plucking grain first. Right, so in Deuteronomy 23, verse 25, the law actually does allow for the plucking of grain. There's a provision for that. But what the Pharisees are doing is they're referring to Exodus, okay, 34 verse 21, which says, you know, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, 
So they're saying, Jesus, you're, you're actually breaking the law. You're, 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 or at the very least, you're supporting the act of breaking the law. You're allowing your disciples to pluck grain. So they're not saying that the act of plucking grain itself is wrong, but it's the fact it's done on the Sabbath. Okay? And in the case of the man with the withered hand, the, the Pharisees challenged Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Don't you have to do something to heal someone? And so they test Jesus, and in their eyes, Jesus falls yet again. He heals the man with a withered hand. Gosh, terrible. Right? And we don't have time to break it all down, but Jesus responds in three ways. Uh, firstly, he gives the example of King David eating consecrated bread in the temple uh, in the Old Testament. And, and Jesus' point is, if God permitted David to eat the consecrated bread when he was on the run, being hunted from Saul, that's the context, because he was hungry and in need, why can't Jesus allow his disciples to eat when they're hungry? And that begins to make us link, oh, is Jesus saying that he's got the same authority as God? And then secondly, Jesus repeats something he actually said in chapter 9. And he says, you know, you Pharisees, if you understood what I meant, what it means, when God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you wouldn't condemn my innocent disciples. And he's basically saying, to super summarize, the Pharisees are missing the heart of the law. Like you said, they, 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 they're more interested in the acts, in that box checking, than the heart of what the law is about. Uh, maybe you can think of it this way. Uh, if you were doing CPR on a person, and the person revived, great, and then the medic comes up to you and says, you, you got the tempo just slightly off, I don't understand, how could you get your CPR wrong? And you're like, what are you? The person's alive. Right? Talk about missing the point. And Jesus here is saying, it's not... It's not about those external acts. You miss the heart of the law. But perhaps the most important point Jesus corrects the disciples with is he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying, I instituted the Sabbath. It's my idea. It's my design. And here's where Jesus is straightforwardly saying, I'm God. I was there in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. Who are you? The Pharisees were actually trying to correct the Son of God for the Sabbath that he designed and instituted. And the Pharisees don't like that. They don't like that he heals people. They don't like that he allows people to pluck grain and eat when they're hungry. He's a threat to their religious system. Got to kill this guy. Talk about missing the point. But Matthew doesn't want us to miss the contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees. And so he adds in verses 15 to 21, and we're not going to go through the whole thing, but I just want to look at verses 20 to 21. And this is where it says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles, or better translated, the nations, will hope. A bruised reed is something that's very easily broken. It's tall, it's slender, it's fragile. A smoldering wick just, just has a tiny flame. It would be so easy to extinguish it. In fact, you'd probably take more effort to make sure you don't break a reed and don't snuff a smoldering wick out. Where the Pharisees completely disregard the heart of the law Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, I'm God himself, I'm the authority over the law. 
but he lives out the heart of the law because he is gentle and compassionate. He's not looking for that external effort. He says, he looks inside and he lives it out. He shows what compassion and gentleness is. He's not like the Pharisees. Here's a God who has power but is compassionate and gentle. Someone you can come to. And that's portrait number three. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. But let's go on to portrait number four. Jesus has undeniable power. Now, we're going to be looking at verses 22 to 42, uh, moving on in chapter 12 as well. And here we have another act of power. Okay, so Jesus heals a demon-oppressed man who is blind and mute. And once again, Pharisees enter the picture, and they say, it's only by demonic powers that he, he, he does these miracles. Uh, and Jesus responds by showing the complete lack of logic. He basically asks, you know, is this some satanic civil war? Right? You know, like, why would Satan want to sabotage his own kingdom? It doesn't make sense. So it can't be by the power of Satan that Jesus is doing these miracles. But what Jesus says next is incredible, right? Look at verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So what's that about? He is raising the stakes. He's confronting with the Pharisees by saying, you're, because you're not just rejecting my message, you're calling me satanic, right? Well, and the only other option seems to be that it can't be Satan, right? This seems to be a legitimate power of God, the Spirit of God at work. Therefore, Jesus says, I am God's representative bringing about his kingdom. Make no mistake about who you're calling satanic. He's raising the stakes. You are rejecting God's representative, the promised Messiah. And in verse 29, he goes on to say, the only person who can overpower Satan, whom he metaphorically calls a strong man, is someone stronger and greater than Satan, who is against Satan. At this point, the case is quite clear. Jesus possesses incredible power and authority to heal. He's using it against Satan's kingdom of darkness. He says he's the son of man, that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's God himself. Power, authority. You see, to apply to us, that there is no neutral ground with Jesus. Not saying you can't investigate, not saying you can't ask questions. That's why we have hope explored. But where you land cannot be to say, Actually, he's just okay. There's no neutral ground. There's no compromise. You have to make a decision. You follow Jesus or you walk away and live with the consequences. That's where you land. It's one or the other. There's no in-between. Either your whole life is about centering on him or none of it is. Don't even look at his teaching and say, well, that's kind of good. Quite like the sound of it. You follow and you put your faith in him and you worship him or you say, this person is completely not worth following. What are you going to do? How's our faith? How's our obedience? Do we see that he is this powerful God? who does mighty works, who demands our allegiance. But Jesus has one more thing to say about the Pharisees. 
he wants to say, he wants to talk about the blasphemy of the Spirit. Now, we're going to spend a little bit of time on this because this is a text that has been talked about a lot and very misunderstood. Um, but let's, let's clear it up, right? The Pharisees have displayed a level of hard-heartedness like we've seen that goes beyond rejecting Jesus at a certain level. And they've, they've, they've shown themselves capable of mistaking God's work, the, the work of God's Spirit, for the works of Satan. And so Jesus says, that's, this is blasphemy of the Spirit. And, and that means that because the, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the way that we come to repentance. Okay? So to introduce a bit of a technical term, uh, the technical term for the Spirit, bringing a person to spiritual life and to repentance is called regeneration. And so it seems like even the avenue of repentance is closed to these Pharisees. That's how blind they are. One commentator puts it like this, the Pharisees were rejecting even the thought of repentance. Such sin involves willful unbelief, persistent rebellion, and final denial. To be able to mistake, mistake the works of God and his spirit for the works of Satan, even after hearing, even after having all the promises of old, even after seeing Jesus at work in person, his power, hearing his message, hearing the one who came before and Jesus himself, they still can deny and go beyond denial and tribute what is God's to Satan. And Jesus is saying, you are just incapable of repentance. That's what blasphemy of the Spirit is. And then Jesus goes on in verses 32 to 37, and he uses a metaphor of fruits, uh, trees and fruits, and he's saying that the nature of the unforgivable sin, again, is not a matter of the words that are said, but a posture of the heart. That's where the unforgivable sin is, to decide to reject any notion of repentance and to refuse to consider the message and the truth of Jesus. That's what the nature of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Not even the avenue of repentance is open. But you see, you think that they would have had enough. They haven't had enough. And they go on and they say, ah, Jesus, can you give us a sign? You say all these things. As if those healings weren't enough. Okay, and at this point, all Jesus has to say is, even the Gentile nations will put you Jewish religious leaders to shame. And then he references really quickly Jonah and Nineveh, um, and he talks about Queen Sheba, this queen of the south who came to Solomon to seek his wisdom. And he's saying, even Sheba came to Israel's leader, king at that time, looking for wisdom. Even sinful Nineveh, when unwilling Jonah comes and preaches the shortest sermon you've ever read in the Bible, they repent, and you don't repent. That's all he has to say. He says, even the Gentiles have repented in history. That's it. Shame on them. Shame on the Jewish religious leaders, right? At this point, we can see that Jesus is wise. He's a teacher. He's a great prophet. He's come to herald this new kingdom. And he demands allegiance or rejection. So let's consider whether our fruit lines up with our hearts. Specifically, our words. Right? Jesus says we have to give account for every uh, kind of loose word that we say that's not considered. 
I'm guilty of that often, and I regret some things I say. Um, but let's think about our words. Let's make sure that we say what's true, what's encouraging, what's loving, what's inviting to people so that they want to know Jesus. Jesus has undeniable power. We have to respond to him. He demands allegiance and our obedience. But finally, let's look at how Jesus grants rest, portrait number five. And here, I'm just going to pull everything together. We've covered a lot. This has been like a really, like many, many train stops. You know, we're just going along. Um, let's look at the very end of both chapters 11 and 12. Because we've talked so much about tiredness at the beginning of the sermon. Um, and I just want to address that with what this text has. Why do you think we're tired from all our efforts? Is it just a sheer physical exertion? No, it's not. What's really underneath it all? And I think for many of us, we're trying to build up our identity and value. Listen, to convince ourselves that we are useful, to assure ourselves that we are wanted or even needed. And no wonder we're exhausted. Because it's all about us. You can say, you've got to have a great career, you've got to work hard, pursue excellence at the workplace because I'm a Christian. I've got to be the epitome of Christian morals and service. I've got to be the model parent, the model spouse, the model friend. None of those things are inherently wrong. But if you make them the way that you establish your identity and value, you're not doing what Jesus says. The way of the kingdom is identity formation, moral reformation from the inside out. You can't fake it. You can't, you can't stop the fruit and build the tree. That's not logical. Good fruit means a good tree. Bad tree produces bad fruit. And I really want us to think, many of us, we have high KPIs, right? You have high expectations at, at your work, to use an example. But do you realize that trying this way of living your life, building your, your identity, your value, your worth on your, yourself is the most ridiculous KPI you could ever have. You know why? It never stops. It never ends. It applies to every area of your life. And you're the judge. And because you know your own propensity to screw up, you will be so tired because you'll never be good enough for yourself. And therefore, the cycle. So how tired are you? What's underneath it all? Are you sitting as the judge, evaluating yourself as the person who knows all your propensity to mess up? And it's like you're waiting for that next shoe to drop. You're like, when am I going to... Ah, you know? That's why it's tiring. But Jesus invites us to find rest in him. We've seen today that Jesus on one hand is authoritative and powerful. He's the creator of the world and the giver of the law. He's, and yet he's gentle and compassionate, inviting us to repent from all our efforts, to ascribe value and worth to ourselves apart from him. He invites us to repent from trying to justify ourselves with our good morals, our own efforts at moral reformation to try and live his outside-in life. He invites us to find meaning in his kingdom and just look at the privilege of being in the kingdom. Jesus calls the Father the Lord of heaven and earth. 
And then he says, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You see, when we come to Jesus, and when we put our faith in him, when we repent, we find ourselves on the side of God the Father, the judge, the Lord of heaven and earth. And yet how could we, people who get the principle of the kingdom wrong, rather than living an inside-out life, we live an outside-in life, we fail to obey the law. The law gives us right there, right? Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the whole law. And yet this same giver of the law who knows the Father who will judge, who we want to be on the right side of, how do we come together? And it's possible because Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He invites us to give us the weight of our effort and our sin, the burden of our moral failures to repent and confess our need of him. Because ultimately, Jesus is the lawgiver who bows under the weight of our sin on the cross so that we can receive a joyful and light burden of mercy and acceptance by the Father. What an exchange of burdens. Are you tired today? Do you want a father to cry out to? Jesus cries out at the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But because of that, we can cry out, Abba, Father, and we are heard. We are accepted. We're forgiven. Our hearts are changed. There's no empty religion in this kingdom of heaven. This is an inside-out kingdom. And, and, and that's, not, that's not it. Look at the end of chapter 12. Jesus says, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Do you realize that it's only the grace of Jesus that enables us to do the will of the Father? To live this fruit-bearing inside-out life? And yet he says, As we do the will of the Father, we receive assurance of the nearness of Jesus. We are his brother, sister, mother. We are people who receive the gentleness and compassion of Jesus, who do not need to fear his power and authority, because we come to him by the very grace that he extends. What a picture of rest. It is his grace and compassion and gentleness from beginning to the end. Are you tired? Find rest in Jesus. Live a life that bears fruit inside out by his grace. Let's pray. God, often we try our best to live life the way you want us to live, and we fail. But more than that, we try our own effort apart from you, apart from your grace, apart from your power. And we fail, we, we don't even come to you seeking your compassion and gentleness. We fail to even recognize your character. But I thank you today, we know that you are powerful and authoritative, but you extend the hand of grace, which we can freely accept to exchange our burdens with you, to exchange the burdens of our deadly efforts, our exhausting efforts, for the joy and acceptance of being in your kingdom, to have a father who loves us and a brother who cares for us and has sacrificed for us. Help us to love each other like the family that you call us to be. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my.